Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of First Bite. Just a friendly reminder that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And, you know, I love a good coupon. Don't forget to use the new coupon code BITE21 to get $20 off your registration fee. So check out speechtherapypd.com, register for an annual subscription, and don't forget to use Byte21 for your $20 off. So happy listening, happy growing, and y'all, from the bottom of our hearts with everybody behind First Bite, thank you so much for being part of this journey. Don't forget, check us out at First Bite Podcast on Instagram World and at First Bite on Facebook. Happy learning, y'all. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello, everyone. So today's lecture, one comes with mommy parenting struggles. So if you hear the tiny humans upstairs, hello. But also today's lecture comes with a bit of a heads up warning for your heart, because we are going to have the crucial conversation about ACEs. Now, I'm not talking about the nerdy girl SLP crushing her ACE award for earning like a boatload of CEUs. I'm talking about adverse childhood experiences like trauma, and how that impacts a child's development across their life, and how the SLP on the team is directly involved in the healing process. So y'all folks, you've been warned. 
The fact of the matter is we encounter ACEs every single day, not necessarily our own, but we do bring plenty of that baggage with us. But I'm talking about the ACEs that our patients are feeling, the ACEs that their caregivers are bringing with them, the ACEs that the other allied health team members are bringing too. And through all of that chaos, it's on each and every one of us to show up, bring joy, utilize evidence-based practices, and start that little one on their healing process. And that, that's our calling. So how and where do we start? Well, that's where today's guest, Megan Branham, who holds a master's in social work, is a graduate from the Annie E. Casey Foundation's Leadership for State-Based Advocates and currently serves as the VP of Strategy for North, a media company based out of South Carolina. She's here today to serve as a beacon of hope for all of us on this path. Megan, I am so glad that a lifetime ago, God led you into our lives at our sweet little church daycare. So hi. (laughs) Hi. I know who would have thought all those years ago, like here's where we would be, right? Like I am just, it's like, it's a God thing for sure. And I just love it when our paths crossed again recently. So I am so excited to be here. Thank you. So y'all, a little bit of backstory. I basically embraced trauma as a theme this summer, which was like, maybe in retrospect, not the greatest theme to embrace when you're like coming off of like major work endeavors and emotionally exhausted. But it's a huge part of what we encounter every single day. So this summer, my graduate student clinicians have worked through learning about trauma for our patients. Some of the coursework included this amazing book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, which I recommend every single person listening, read it. We had Dylan Hartley, OTRL with Advanced Institute for Development and Learning out of Greenville. He guest lectured to talk about trauma and polyvagal theory. He was on the podcast a while back. And Megan came and talked about this with my students and You remember in grad school when you have the lecture and you're like, why did they bring this person here? And you like struggle through. I'm telling you that one, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And there was also enough laughter that I did almost pee a little because (laughs) post mom baby bladder. And three, (laughs) although I did trampoline jump last weekend and I totally peed a little, but like number three, people came up to her. She had a line of people coming up to talk to her afterwards about this, about trauma, personal experiences, patient experiences, relative experiences, because this is what we do. So I was like, we got to do this again. Can you do this again? So hi. Hi. I just have to say your students are amazing. And I think I even texted you you after I was like, I, because I love love, love, love working with students, right? Like have taught, I'm a field supervisor, like your students just were amazing and gave me so much hope for the future of the profession and like really feeling like South Carolina's children are going to be in great hands. So it was an amazing experience. And I'm so thrilled to like continue the conversation today because it's one of those I don't know about you, but you know, you start having these big conversations and then you have a thousand more questions after and like processing after and just thinking and making the connections. And so it's really great to kind of be able to dive in a little bit deeper with you today one-on-one. 
Awesome. Well, stick around because at the end, I'm going to sweet talk you into talking to my friend Yumi and um, doing a webinar for us. So <laughs> what you don't know, I'm pulling you into, Megan. Do, do, do. I'll want to hear master plan. I know. Master plan. But I promise I'll buy you a cold pint at Steel Hands when we're done to make up for it. I'm cold. I am there. <laughs> awesome. Also, disclaimer, I highly recommend going to Steel Hands in Casey, South Carolina. Okay, moving on. Yes. <laughs> we have to embed a little bit of humor. Otherwise, we For would cry sure. through this hour. Yes. For sure. Okay, so ACEs. An ACE is not acing your ASHA CEUs. Can you talk to me about what is an ACE for for our children? Absolutely. So I have to say, I have a background in social work, and I came to social work because I love people. I wanted to work with people. I, in really particular, had an interest in doing community work. So really engaging, meeting people where they're at in their communities. And 15 years ago, plus when I was in graduate school, we sort of talked around this issue, right? Like we knew what trauma was and we knew sort of how it showed up, but it honestly wasn't until I really got into my career and in the last, you know, five, 10 or so years that there's been this sort of collective conversation around ACEs and it's elevated in a lot of different ways. So I wasn't just having these conversations like, among social work colleagues or other colleagues that were working with children and families, it was kind of becoming more of a bigger dialogue. And so I think for a lot of people, I always say when you hear about ACEs, you are probably going to realize like, oh, okay, so that's what that's called. Like I knew what it was, but I didn't know that that was the name for it. So the short story is ACEs really came out of some research that was happening in the early 90s about chronic health issues. And there were some researchers that were looking at why there were these mental or behavioral issues later in life. And what they were tracing it back to were adverse childhood experiences, things that were happening to people in their youth. So things like living in a home where substance misuse was prevalent or experiencing trauma. So experiencing a physical emotional, sexual abuse. It was things like living with a parent who had maybe an undiagnosed mental health issue. And all of these things started to connect, right? So like we're seeing a lot of things sort of play out in later in life with chronic health issues, mental health issues. And again, we're connecting it back to the dots of, wow, what was happening was in these early, really formative years, trauma was literally changing someone's physiology. Like it was literally changing their body and how their mind worked. And all of this was happening without awareness. Like it was happening, but it was having such an impact on people later in life. So that's kind of the origin story of it. I would say if you're interested in really digging in on the research, if you're like me and probably you, Michelle, like Give me the research. Give me the data. <laughs> Tell I me the why. All the things. <laughs> Dr. Robert Anda and Vincent Filetti were the two investigators on the preliminary, the very beginning ACEs study. And it was, again, early 90s, a controlled group out of California, limited participants. But there's fantastic information if you want to dig into more of like 
how it all started with the study. So that's kind of the jumping off point, I think, for the ACEs conversation. When I was in grad school, I was going through the trauma of a very violent first marriage. And Mm -hmm. so I distinctly remember shutting down when they were talking about it in school because I just, it was like a switch went and I I couldn't hear it. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'll be honest, sitting and listening to your talk, every time we talk about trauma, it hits my triggers, but like, I have to have that conversation and I have to push through because domestic abuse happens and I'm no longer a victim. I'm an advocate, which is very powerful and very humbling to say. Yes. But Dylan, when he was lecturing, he was talking about how it alters the DNA in our bodies. Yes. And it triggered a memory to when they presented it in grad school, there was a research study and y'all forgive me. I cannot remember the name of the author of the research study, but what they did was they looked at three generations of families after World War II. And it was one and I'm going to butcher this word, but y'all know I work on swallowing, not on the talking aspect of things. <laughs> so like, man, multisyllabic words are hard. Hesiatic Judaism, where yes, it's very uh-huh. orthodox. And so what they did was they looked at the three generations out for the Hesiatic Jewish families that survived the concentration camp and stayed in Germany. For those that made it to England prior as the war was going on and those that made it to Canada. So the original family members and then three generations out. And the closer you were to the epicenter, the more mental health issues, the more like you were talking about physical illness mm-hmm. and even down to learning disabilities that were increased prevalence three generations later. Yeah. And it's there's a part of our DNA, it's the tales of the oh my gosh, oh somebody somewhere is screaming the name of that word. It's the very tip, the very ends of the chromosomes. (laughs) They're deteriorating because of the trauma that we carry. Yeah. And we are carrying that trauma and embedding that at a molecular cellular level into the next generation. And then you have an ACE. So, yes. Okay. That is exactly it. And I... I think for a lot of us in the social fields, you know, we don't always get a really deep dive into the biology of it. Like we sort of, you know, and kind of depending on the type of work that you do, you come into working with with clients with maybe not that, at least for me personally, I, I don't know that I really understood the biology component of it, but everything that you're describing is exactly what the research is showing that like generational trauma is real. It is literally embedded in our cells and our DNA. Trauma rewires the brain. And so, like you said, stuff that triggers us from our own personal trauma can happen at any time, right? And and our mm-hmm. body, and we have no control over it, right? Our body is doing what it does naturally, which is protecting itself. So our body's going to go into that fight, flight, or freeze mm-hmm. mode of like, oh my gosh, warning, warning, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to flee? Am I supposed to fight? What am I supposed to do? And so I think that having that understanding of like, it is your body doing what it does. There is not shame there. And I, and I'm big, you know, I'm a big Brene Brown fan. I love her. I want her to be my best friend. I hope that she's listening to this podcast. I'm putting it out there. (laughs) Brene, be my friend. (laughs) 
I would love to have coffee with you, but you know, like let's destigmatize that and let's like recognize that like it is the body doing what it does naturally and reframing and reshifting from like what is wrong with you to what is what's happened to you and exactly what you just described. It's these experiences that have either happened to us directly or, oh my gosh, happened to our parents, our grandparents, and we're still dealing with the residual effects of it. So there's a lot to unpack there. And again, I think it's one of those like you go into this and you start to peel back the layers and you start to realize how much ACEs impact everything. And I often talk about it, and I think I mentioned this to your students, you know, I also often talk about it and think about it in terms of an iceberg, because visually you can think about what an iceberg looks like. You know, you have the big block of ice outside of the water, but what you don't see is what's underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And that's often what trauma looks like is what we see, which is the behavioral issues or some of the chronic health issues or some of the other kind of residual, like I said, effects of trauma that have reshaped us. But what we don't see is all of that under under the water, the generational trauma, the experiences itself. A lot of times we see what's face value and, and having an awareness and of an understanding that there's so much more to the picture really helps us to be better clinicians and better approach our clients with that trauma-informed lens. So one of the things that I've had a hard sell for families is getting them to understand that what they've endured actually quantifies as trauma. Yes. Because folks don't want to think that they have been through trauma or that their child has been through trauma. Mm-hmm. Especially my my NICU babies when they're like, but you know, we, we, and again, I don't work in the NICU, but like the babies that I received that have successfully navigated out of the NICU, you know what I mean? Right. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, but that was trauma. You go from, and Dylan explained it excellent yesterday. So it's fresh in my mind. You go from a safe, safe space in the womb to all of a sudden you're ripped out of there and attached and being poked and prodded. And then God help you if you start having a bleed or what if your mom had substance abuse problems and now you're going through detox, but yet you're a preemie. And I've had patients that had full-term healthy pregnancies. And then all of a sudden they get stuck in the birth canal and then they have the trauma of, of that experience. And let's not neglect the absolute trauma that is the delivery process, the trauma Mm -hmm. that is embedded in, you can speak to this, into the adoption process and all of our foster warriors out there, not worrying in the sense, but advocate warriors. Yes. And all of those can be types of trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that is a great starting point because the original ACEs study was so limited, right? And there was only so much that we knew from that initial study because, again, this is not something we've really, you know, it's been researched for a long time, believe it or not. I mean, trauma has existed, right, since the beginning of time, but it's not something that we've really studied for very long. And so, you know, I think that some of the things that that initial study showed and that subsequent studies have shown is that ACEs are common. They're very prevalent. Out of those 10 first sort of classic, what we describe as like the classic ACEs, 
your emotional abuse, domestic violence, some type of mental health, parents being separated or incarcerated. So you have those like sort of 10 original. And then from that, we see the list growing, right? Like, and and I think we talked a little bit about this class of like, we know that trauma doesn't stop there, that kids who experience homelessness, or maybe there's like mm-hmm. food insecurity in the homes, or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's a lot going on with the parents and there's unresolved trauma from them. And then how mm-hmm. does that show up in their parenting? So I think, again, we start to realize that this is just kind of the beginning of the work of realizing what trauma really looks like. And that while it it is universal in the sense that trauma is pretty common and we all have experienced some type of trauma in our lives, it is also very unique, meaning that it's going to look different for everyone, right? So it's going to present itself differently and it's going to have to be addressed differently and in, in a way that works for that person. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that is one thing that does make it a little bit more challenging because it's so nice when you have a standard practice for like, if this, then, then, and here's how you respond. Trauma is tricky. And so it's going to require a little bit of finesse and a little bit of agility in order to really address it depending on the person and their experiences. So that's just something I think to be aware of in this field and this work. It's just as we kind of move move through learning more about it. I feel like chemistry and maybe math, but not theoretical math, but like math, math are the only things that truly follow the if this, then that (laughs) philosophy. Because if you screw up in chemistry, something explodes. So clearly, if this, then don't do that. Or maybe you needed an explosion, but like otherwise, not necessarily. Right, right. So it's one of those, like, if only everything was that easy. (laughs) If only it was like, oh, okay, don't, it's like parenting, right? You're like, um, we're going to try this today and we're just going to see what happens. It's an experiment 24 seven. Oh my God. This morning at the oh dark 30 this morning, we're sitting around and I'm like, go brush your teeth. And they're like, well, I did. I'm like, clearly you did not because they're still slimy. Yeah. Like (laughs) if you don't do this, then this will happen. (laughs) Right. Right. Oh my God. Kids are gross. I love my children, but like raw. Okay. I know. I know. So trauma, when we go in and we do our assessments, y'all. Yeah. And I'm going to speak to home health for a second because this is my first love, right? Yeah. So when I go into a home, this is very intimate, right? Mm -hmm. And our pediatricians, our physicians, our specialists, they don't get those moments with our patients. They get the patients when they're in their office. And typically, our families present different when you have an, an office visit versus when you're in their space. From the second you exit your vehicle, the subway, the second they can see you, somebody somewhere is assessing you. So Mm -hmm. tip number one, engage your therapeutic presence at that moment, Mm -hmm. right? Take your baggage and as best you can, put it to the side. I tell Aaron, I visualize myself in a hamster bubble. So like I can go in and engage, but I'm not letting that trauma into my space. Oh, I like, like that. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But like the bubble's a circle. Sometimes you get stuck in the bubble and you're spinning in circles in all directions, but like that's a whole other conversation. But when you're yeah. in there, feel the room. Take mm-hmm. a peek at what's really going on. When I'm doing a PFD eval, I ask the family to show me what their foods are, not just talk to me. Don't tell me, show me. Mm-hmm. Because when you open a cabinet and it's kind of bare, old Mother Hubbard style, that's when I'm like, okay, so we may need to make a phone call here and get this support over here. And But that's, that's I don't know. I know exactly. I mean, I think first of all, I just love the image of the bubble, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like protecting yourself. And I always talk to mm-hmm. students and, and colleagues too about like, and this could be a whole other episode about self-care and like, how are we mm-hmm. paying attention to our bodies and ourselves mm-hmm. and realizing like, oh, I'm triggered now. Oh, that's what, that's how this is showing up for me. And I need to be able to just like, I always feel like hit the pause on it, not like push it aside, but like, Let's hit the pause on it so I can stay present in this moment, deal with what's in front of me, and then revisit this later, right? That takes practice. That is an ongoing, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, an ongoing struggle and constantly learning about how to take care of yourself. So I feel like that is definitely one, but I love that visual. So now I'm forevermore going to think about it that way. But Michelle <laughs> yeah. running around in a hamster bubble. <laughs> in <laughs> <her> <laughs> hamster <laughs> bubble. Although sometimes it's like hamster on a hamster wheel in the bubble. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> all the things. Yes. Yes. But you know what? I think that's great. You know, I think about like when you step into the a person's environment and I have done work as a guardian ad litem. And so like you are seeing people at their worst, their absolute worst. Something has led to the removal of their child from their care. And as a parent, that just guts me, you know? And so I think about stepping into these situations of people's home environments and knowing and the awareness that, again, the research tells us three in five South Carolinians report an ACE. And this is all data. I do have to make a plug for the Children's Trust of South Carolina. They do phenomenal work. They have some fantastic data, some fantastic programs, but they were doing research showing like, this is three in five South Carolinians that are reporting. Like you said earlier, Michelle, some people are not addressing that are realizing Mm -hmm. they have trauma they're not disclosing it. So at least this is what we know to be true of people that are telling us they've had these experiences. So you are stepping into a home with, let's say it's mom, dad, grandma, and two kids. Three of them have had some type of an ACE, at least one, right? Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, you sort of know what the, the playing field is. And then I think from that, figuring out where to start. And I love that you are looking at not just kind of like, like we said, not just what's in front of you with that iceberg, but like, mm-hmm. what does the cabinet look like? Are you able to provide? Are there areas where in which you're struggling? Because it's all connected. You can't just be like, oh, you have food insecurity, but yet you are fulfilled in every other aspect. No, no, mm-hmm. no. That's going to seep into it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of times too, checking yourself at the door, like you said, sort of checking any preconceived notions that you have about what that family is or is not, Mm -hmm. and really just being open to listening and observing and not just kind of coming in and like 
okay, we're going to do this, 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 check a list, move on. You really do have to approach it more from like curiosity and wanting to learn and understand so that you can really best serve, best serve a family Mm -hmm. in that setting. Mm -hmm. And what you said, implicit biases, that's what triggered in my head when you said yes, because we we all, we have implicit biases that we may not even be aware of. But sure. when you look at our profession, our profession, speech pathologists, I mean, I can't speak to what social workers, what the overall demographics look like, but I mean, we're 97, I think, percent female uh-huh. and 91 percent white women. Yeah. I probably have my percentages slightly skewed there, but I mean, it's basically a middle age white female dominated profession. Sure. Yep. And mm-hmm. I don't know what I don't know, but God help me, I think I'm teachable. Right. I try to be. <laughs> and right. if I'm not, he sure has a way of making me teachable. <laughs> so like we'll learn it one way or the other. <laughs> one <Well>. way or another. <laughs> so my dad always said <laughs> he's like, You're a learning style. You're the kid who had to pee on the electric fence. And I was like, Well, yeah. And then I like wonder where Bear gets it from. But we have we have those. And I mean an evaluation day or a reeval day or a transfer and continuity of care day, that's your opportunity to get a whole nother fresh set of eyes in on a case. Mm-hmm. And I see trauma with my feeding kiddos and how they react when the food is presented to them. Do they go into startle reflex, like fight or flight, moral reflex? Do they throw their arms out to their side and pull their hands up? Are their hands clenched? Those are other red flags. What about when they turn their head and purse their lips? I mean, folks, one horrifying fact that I remember from undergrad was when they were talking about infants and children and toddlers, when you're going to change their diapers, if they get very still on the table, that's a sign of tiny ears or upstairs, but molestation. Uh-huh. And and you have to be aware of that being a red flag. Mm-hmm. I think I were like a floor away from my children having this conversation, but like uh, working mom props. Yes. But yeah, those are red flags that need to be talked about. And honestly, how many of us in the home health world have been there when a parent has to change a child's diaper yeah. right in front of you and they don't even think anything about it? I mean, you should be critically assessing all of these and If you're doing a session with one caregiver and another caregiver enters the room and the child's behavior, demeanor changes, Mm -hmm. those, you have to be aware of what's happening. Yeah. Because, yeah. I know. I think that's it. Like, it really is. I feel like when I have these conversations with students or like early practitioners, like their eyes can start to get really big and it starts to feel a little overwhelming because it's like, you don't want to miss anything. And, and I always, you know, try to reassure, like, look, you're human. You're not going to pick up on everything. But the point Mm -hmm. is, is that you are conditioning yourself to look at it again from that lens. We talk about being trauma informed and that really means like responding in a way or working with someone in a way that you know that they've experienced trauma. And so we don't want to re-traumatize. 
we don't want to assume, but just because you did this, then this means this. But like you really want to start practicing a way of interaction that you can be aware and or if something just doesn't quite, it just like, I don't know what it is, but it just doesn't quite feel right that I have a trusted mm-hmm. colleague that I can go to and be like, you know what, this didn't feel like I don't know. I just, I wasn't sure about this and to have that safe space to have those conversations because to your point earlier, if we have a field and again, social work's very similar, predominantly women, predominantly white women. If we're working with a population that is predominantly black or Latino, and we are not aware of the cultural pieces as Mm -hmm. well of like, oh, I could totally misread the situation, but it was part of their culture or part of their family practice. And so if I am not sort of like clued into that a little bit, then it may have a totally different outcome, right? And so I think that part of that is that sort of constant learning, assessing, having a safe place to sort of debrief and say like, am I, was, was I totally off on that? Or do you think I should have handled that differently? And again, I think that's one thing that all of this ACEs work and trauma work has taught us is that, again, it's still new. We're still learning and we're still exploring how we deal with it, frankly. Yeah. Generations living in a home together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I grew up with my grandma raised me. She was in our home. My parents were there, but they split when I was young. Blah, blah, blah. Trauma. My other grandparents <laughs> right. lived right next door. But to me, it was normal to have that many older people around, mm-hmm. that many people to physically be in a house. Mm-hmm. And I have a boatload of siblings to boot. So, I mean, there's a lot of people. Christmas is really, really loud. Everybody yells just to be heard. <laughs> my, husband and, my husband and Goose go hide because they're the introverts. And yes. like you find them in a corner somewhere gaming or reading or playing a board game. And they're like, mom, it's just two people. And Christian's like, yeah, mom, it's two people. And I'm like, shush. Yes. <laughs> but like, oh my gosh. But yeah. that's, that's normal, right? Yeah, but right. for somebody outside looking in, I could easily misconstrue, well, how many people are in a bed? I mean, how right. many, how yeah. many people, but I mean, that's, that's implicit that's biases. Yes. So much that. Yes. And I think too, part of it, and we talked a little bit about this when I came to your class, but I think a lot of times, and again, this is a shift in practice. A lot of times it is really easy to focus on the risk factors. Like what is wrong? What are you not doing quote unquote right? And I think that our field or any field that's interacting with children and families is a shift to what's often referred to as the protective factors. So basically what's working right. And there's really five protective factors and I'll just run through them really quick because there's a lot that we could go into on those, but it's looking at parental resilience. So how resilient, what is the bounce back factor for parents that are struggling with everything that's going on in their life? Is there an understanding of child development? Do they understand like a six month old's not going to be like, walking and talking and moving around. Like it is totally normal for your three-year-old to basically look like they're having an exorcism on the floor at public. (laughs) (laughs) Like all of these things are an understanding of child development. So if we have an understanding, we can respond appropriately and carry them out, you know, the one-armed football. (laughs) 
carry out that we've all had to do many a times. <laughs> so it's that it's, you know, knowing that they have concrete support, that there are, like you said earlier, there's connection to a food pantry to fill that empty cabinet, that they have social support. Again, like you said, there were extended family around. They were there to watch kids when somebody wasn't able to. And that too, there's like this, also the social emotional competency of children. So children are building from very early on their emotional intelligence. They are understanding identity. They are feeling loved and protected and secure in themselves. And so those five protective factors, and I'm sure in the show notes too, Michelle, we can put a link for folks that are interested in learning more, but it's really looking at those protective factors to say, wow, you are just like knocking it out of the park. Like you have got some really solid social supports. Like you've got people that have your back where you might need some help or some concrete supports, right? Like you might mm-hmm. need food stamps or you might need connection to childcare, some childcare vouchers. And so I think- Power that- bills. Yes. Oh my gosh. Transportation. Power bills. Yes. yes. Okay. Power bills. Did you know most power companies can set up a monthly payment like on an average so that it's predictable as opposed to fluctuating? And wait, transportation here in South Carolina, we have something called Logisticare. That's the name of it. And yes. if you are a recipient of Medicaid, they will reimburse you if you call in advance for your mileage to and from all medical health appointments and I believe school services as well. I have to double check that second piece. But if you don't have transportation, they will provide transportation for you, which is excellent for free, y'all, for free. So you have to know those resources. Sorry, I got excited, but no, you are absolutely, that's it. I mean, and that's the kind of stuff we see in, in practice. I mean, that's real. And I think knowing that there are organizations out there and who we can connect with to be like, okay, like you said, you need help with your power bills. You need help with transportation, fill in the blank. You need help with whatever knowing that there are community organizations or other initiatives to help. I do think, and I want to make a point here because the advocate in me just cannot miss the opportunity, that one of the frustrating things I think a lot of times about this work is that the practice and the policy don't always match up. <laughs> and so we were talking about this <laughs> right yes, before we say it again. <laughs> yes, is that we work literally decades on changing public policy to match what we know to be true in practice. And so there is a need in this field to be loud, be vocal about that, about the reality of what families are dealing with so that we can change change the policy, which often in turn leads to funding for services and programs. So I think, and I always try to instill that in the students that I work with and and support that from my colleagues of like, we have got to let state or federal lawmakers know this is what's happening to their constituents. They don't have this or this is where they are meeting roadblocks and we can fix that. We can fix that with policy and we can support practice in that way. So I just always say is where there are opportunities to engage in advocacy, whatever that looks like for you, please do that because we so desperately need more of that. We're, it's only going to make you know serving our families, it's only going to make it better and we're only going to end up really helping more people as a result. But 
we have to be vocal about it. Have to. So yes. uh, soapbox, but I had to, I could not miss the opportunity to say that. No, I'm going to piggyback on that soapbox. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. I have said this, this is episode 158. So I have probably said this um, at least 300 times, <laughs> but we are members of a national association that has registered lobbyists at the national level. They do not have a lobbyist registered in each one of the 50 states, okay? Only your state registered lobbyist is able to advocate at a state level. There's laws protecting this, okay? So ASHA can guide a policy for your state. It is you, the practitioner in the state, recognizing the problem and then it's one thing to fuss about a problem. And my daddy, this is the G-rated version. But <laughs> it's another thing to turn around. What are you doing with that next breath? So what you're supposed to do is write it down, send an email to your state association lobbyists, VP of governmental affairs or president. Okay. They're the people that work together to advocate on behalf of your patients and your colleagues in your state. And y'all, they want to hear from you. I mean, heavens to Betsy's. I was on the phone yesterday driving home with Kelly Caldwell, who's the Skisha VP of governmental affairs. And we were identifying a loophole where clinical fellow years are not allowed to access certain things and bill in a certain setting. And it's a direct violation of the federal she found that it was a direct violation of like a federal Medicare policy mm -hmm. and blah, 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 because like she's amazing. And then I was on the phone with Hillary Cooper, who's the new president-elect of Louisiana. And she was talking about an issue that they're facing in their state. And I was like, well, hey, did you consider this? And she was like, oh, my God, we can do that. She was yeah. like, we can enact this policy change. But I'm driving home. Yes, maybe I shouldn't be talking on the phone when I'm driving. But it's asking the question, seeking the counsel. Yes. And then turning around and you may not need to be the person who carries it forward. Yeah. Right. They may task you with it. They may say, Hey, we, you identified the problem. Come tell us more and help us fix it. But they don't know that the problem exists in the first place because often your state association leadership may not work in your geographic area or physical setting. Yeah. So if you don't carry it over, we don't know it, how to fix it. Yes. Exactly. And I just want to underscore because I think a lot of times people are like, oh, this is maybe just an isolated incident. I guarantee you, no. I would bet you money, right? Like take it to the bank. It is not. And if you think, oh, maybe this is just me, like maybe this is just what I'm dealing with with this particular instance. Absolutely not. And so what, mm -hmm. what happens and what you so perfectly described is it's the collective voice of all of these people being mm -hmm. like, yeah, 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 this is not working. And we don't know what to do about it, but we can take it to the people that do. And we can find that, yes. oh my gosh, there is a loophole. And oh my gosh, there is a solution for this. But the people that can fix it, again, don't always have the awareness that it's a problem in the first place. And yes. so I think just having the conversation and being like, I'm just putting this out there. Like I said, I don't know what to do with it, but it seems like this should be fixable. So I think that there, I love that you made that plug because I think a lot of times people are just like, it, it's so easy, right? It's so easy just to be like, 
it's, it's not my problem or I don't know what to do about it. So I'm just not going to do anything, <laughs> you know, but mm-hmm, just be like, mm-hmm. just have a conversation and be open and honest of like, I am really struggling or man, I am seeing so many families really struggling with this and there's got to be a better way. So yes, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Okay. So full circle this. We now have a better understanding of ACE Awards. Oh my gosh, Megan Squirrel, I really have this huge project idea that I want to create. Okay, we're going to go ahead and embed it here. Somebody okay, message me afterwards. We're going to manifest this is, it. We're going to manifest We're going to put it in the universe. I've called a friend. I've pitched it to a couple people. Here in South Carolina, this is what I dream of happening. I want a adaptive communication board that has latex free paint on it at every single handicap accessible playground across the state. Mm. I don't know how to make that happen, but I want to make it happen. And I have a notion on how to fund it. I think if we do training, if we create a training program and then train volunteers and how to reach out to local police and law enforcement on how to engage with adults with special needs that are having a breakdown and how to communicate with them using their communication device. And instead of the departments paying for the training, they instead put in a communication board at an adaptive playground. All the, the wheels are turning. All right. All yes. the wheels. Yes. So folks, here's my idea. Please replicate. Please take it. Please do. Let's do that. But I think that would be phenomenal. And I have a lady coming on in like a couple of weeks. Her name is Brianna Emanuel. I'm hoping I'm saying this correct. And she created a communication board. She's a school-based clinician and she had one built for an adaptive playground. And because I've had this idea like in my head for like from ever, to quote Theodore, that's Bear's real name, Theodore. Yes, from ever, mom, from ever. (laughs) But um, (laughs) we do the R's right. Thank you, Dr. But that would be, I think, manifesting. Okay, so just full circle this for how we do about it. Okay. Okay, so... (laughs) that's a really big squirrel folks. I apologize. Okay. But here's the thing. We recognize the adverse childhood experience. We recognize the trauma in our families and we recognize big picture. Now the steps involved in creating state advocacy for change, whether that be getting a communication board in place because we need one or Another notion for state advocacy for change, what about our patients that have celiac disease and gluten-free foods are not yet covered by stamp benefits? How atrocious is that when you have food scarce insecurities? That's the word. Thank you. Food insecurities. However, the financial aid doesn't cover what your child needs. Right. Mm -hmm. So what community resources? Where do we go for help? I think one thing I'll say about South Carolina is we are small, but we are mighty. And tiny but mighty. Love tiny it. Tiny but mighty. So at least in South Carolina, and I know, you know, you probably have listeners from all over the country, all over the world. So um, <laughs> also, hello to everybody from Australia, Italy, Japan, Germany, England, and New Zealand who bought at Chasing the Swallow. Thank oh, you guys. I totally cried. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we, will com- we will take the show on the road. We will come to you as a selfless yes. act. 
Oh my God, I love that. Yes, Megan and I, Aaron too, we're coming your way. I'm going. Yes, but no, like, and it really depends on, I mean, and I can talk specifically about South Carolina, but you know, there these organizations are everywhere. And I think it's finding organizations, I mentioned Children's Trust earlier, just that are doing the research, doing the policy work and doing the programming and helping to serve families. And I think about other organizations like Family Connection of South Carolina that are really working with families who have children who have some type of either disability or other chronic health issues that they're they're working on. There are some really great nonprofits in our state that are serving families, meeting them where they're they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then too, there's some really good sort of like great hybrid policy or state and nonprofit organizations like First Steps that are working to serve children in preschool and early ed. So there's a lot that's happening. I think, again, oftentimes, I think we probably feel like they're, we're all sort of operating in silos or we're operating just within our space, but really we're going to be more effective if we're interconnected. That's just how humans live. That That is literally human nature. We are social creatures. We have to be connected. And our organizations, right, our collective like work has to all be connected. Mm-hmm. I have worked for several years with groups that are serving kinship caregivers. And so these are people that kind of like you described, Michelle, your personal experience of like being raised by extended family or having, mm-hmm. you know, spending periods of time living with grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, somebody that would take you in and take care of you and do it without support because there isn't, you know, a lot of times policy and practice that bolsters those family settings. And so I just have to brag and say there's a great network of organizations across the state that are working and serving kinship caregivers. And a lot of this is back to the protective factors. A lot of it's, you know, helping to meet concrete support, getting them Mm -hmm. money so that they can pay for school expenses or all the things that come with raising a kid without cashing out your your retirement, right? Because you are now Mm -hmm. unexpectedly raising children that you didn't plan for, but are willingly and ready to do. So just Mm -hmm. things like that, where we're trying to figure out how to support families and simultaneously address their trauma, right? Address all of the generational trauma that comes with it. So there are a lot of organizations that are sharing best practices, sharing resources. Mm -hmm. Again, with the, the goal in mind, the end result in mind of making sure families and children get the help that they need. So I would say wherever you practice, get to know your local community organizations. There are always going to be some version of parent advocacy organizations. There's always going to be some type of child advocacy organizations, early ed, you name it. I mean, you can go down the list. It's just finding who they are for you locally and building those relationships and making those connections because nobody is able to do everything. We're just not. We're never going to do it. We need to stop trying. But the key is always knowing who to go to, right, for whatever the issue is that that has kind of come up. So like, I know my boundaries. I know my limits. I'm not going to be able to fix it. But I know who can. So that's always my charge to folks is, is just figure out what your network looks like. Build your 
your support network as a professional and who are your, who can you pick up the phone? I can't tell you how many times just happened yesterday, picked up the phone to call someone and ask about a case that someone else asked me about of like, I need therapeutic intervention and I don't know who in this area does it, but I know, you know, so can you tell me who I can refer to? So it's that type of practice that makes us better clinicians, better practitioners. And again, better serves our families. Okay. So I have so many happy thoughts, but I have to pull my references. Okay. (laughs) Also, the kids are jumping upstairs and they're not supposed to be. And so uh, the ceiling fan is shaking. So y'all, you're welcome for the background rattle. We're apparently jamming out upstairs. So one, we are mandatory reporters right out the gate, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see it and you say nothing, that's a problem. And yes, when you're a mandatory reporter, they will ask for your content information, but they will keep it private, okay? Because that's protected by by law. Okay, so there is a piece in here in our code of ethics where we are supposed to make referrals, okay? Mm -hmm. It is our responsibility to make referrals and I will I will find it. But go back and there we go, rule of ethics. I will eventually find this position statement in the ethics. But oh here it is. Rule of ethics, principle of ethics for rule of ethics A. Individuals shall work collaboratively when appropriate with members of one's own profession and or members of other professions. And where is the one that says referrals? Okay, whatever. It's in there. But here's the thing. You are allowed to, in your plan of care, make a request for a referral for the family, their caregivers, the child to receive counseling. We can make the referral request. Can you make a referral as a speech-language pathologist yourself? No, we're not the licensed physician, but we can request that the referral be made, okay? And so that's a huge piece because- And I think that's the part of like realizing you as the advocate, right? So like, Uh and I think I love that. I love that there's the guiding principles of your ethics of your profession Mm -hmm. that say, lay out- clearly here's your roles and responsibilities. And so within those Mm -hmm. parameters, what am I required to do? And where's my boundaries? What am I supposed to be doing? But yeah, Mm -hmm. making sure that Mm -hmm. you are an advocate and requesting that. So I think that's, that's perfect. That's exactly. And that is what, that's really what it takes, right? To getting to the point where we're helping people deal with their trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Is being that spokesperson for people, they may not be able to advocate for themselves or they may feel like they're not being heard. And so giving them the space and the place to do that. I mean, again, life-changing. Now, there's one other piece that we have to work in about patient-client abandonment, okay? Mm -hmm. And that ties in a couple different ways. One, making a referral to social services does not mean that social services is going to show up for every single case and remove the child from the home. Mm-hmm. That's a huge misunderstanding, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Some circumstances, absolutely they will, but other times they're going to come in and this is, this is your world, not mine, but don't social workers come in to help the family in that moment of crisis instead of just removing the child? Isn't that yeah. like y'all's first target? 
Absolutely. And I think that I love that you said that because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings and or misconceptions maybe about what happens exactly when DSS um, or some other child welfare entity is involved. It's like they may assess and determine that the risk is not there. The need is not there. Now we can debate that about, well, I think there is, but maybe they don't think there is the need has risen to that level requiring the child to leave the home. Maybe they need some in-home services, right? And so I think that there is having that understanding, at least generally of the process of like, just because you make the call doesn't automatically mean that this is going to happen. It is truly a process and it can take a while, right? It's not going to resolve itself overnight. And so being aware that that's what's going on once you initiate that contact is important. It's really important to understand that. So as a practitioner, it is within our scope of practice that we do not have to provide services in a situation where we are fearful for our own well-being, right? So personally, I have discharged families and transferred and made reports when I felt sexually harassed by a caregiver in the home, especially when I was pre-children and 10 years younger. Yeah. And then I had one case. I just, now I'm so mad because I put up with it for so long because I was so afraid and I would go do therapy. And like the father was just completely inappropriate and I was afraid, Mm -hmm. but I mean, young, naive, you learn, you grow. This is why I'm telling you now. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had situations where I've gone and done a therapy session and there was illicit narcotics in the home and I've had to contact DSS and police. And then I've had to discharge and not return for safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did that, but yeah. I, I made the referral that the child to the pediatrician contacted, relayed what happened, what occurred, and said, I recommend for clinician safety that the child also receive services in a private practice out of the home. Mm-hmm. And you can do that. And I know that we're already over on time, but like I just had to get those. Yeah. So when you're encountering ACEs that place you in jeopardy and it's the child, the patient's ACEs as well, make sure that you're putting those supports in place for the child and make those referrals, but also make sure that you're putting supports in places for you so that you can stay in your safe hamster bubble. Exactly. It all comes back full circle. Yes. (laughs) Perfect. Do a hamster ball. Oh my God, I love, I love you so much. Oh, dang, that's fun. Oh, okay. All right. So you got to come back. All right. So we got to uh, do this right. again. We'll do it again. Uh, we'll do a road show. We'll do a live recording from Steel Hands. We'll do all of it. <laughs> Whatever is required. Whatever is yes. required. But yeah, I would love to. And I would love to just hear from your listeners too. Like what resonates with them? Like what they're curious about? as we continue this conversation, because we're all learning. We're all just learning. Yes. Nobody's doing okay, it wait. perfect. Nobody's doing it right. We're all figuring it out. as well. How do they reach you, Megan? All the ways. You can find me on social. I am forever on Instagram. So Moxie Megs, SC. I am a text girl. Listen, you can text me. This is my phone number. I will give out my phone number because I <laughs> believe in this so much. So 803-727-5769. 
text me. And I always say this to everybody, every presentation I do, like, listen, I know what it feels like to not feel like you have a safe space to like ask a question or like, I don't know what to do. I am forever willing to be a sounding board to people. And as we're all trying to figure this out, because so many people did it for me, right? And especially early on in my career. And I have colleagues now where I just text in the middle of the night and I'm like, "Uh, I don't know what to do about this. So please reach out to me. I'd love to hear from people seriously as we continue to move this work forward because we're all doing it for the people that we love and serve. So we're in it together. And thank you for this opportunity again, Michelle. I think every Friday morning should start with coffee and a podcast with you. (laughs) Honestly, this whole summer, I've done that every Friday morning and then on Sundays during nap time. And the catch is Goose Goose hasn't napped in years. Bear Bear still needs a nap, but whether or not he wants or does is that's, but whatever. So if you text me on Friday mornings and I don't respond, it's because here I am. (laughs) Yes, right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So everybody that's listening, you know, we love it when you follow us on Instagram at First Bite Podcast. Check out the new book. I guess it's not as new. It's been out for two months. It's also on Instagram, Chasing the Swallow. And we have our First Bite Facebook page. We are always extra appreciative when you leave us a review for First Bite on the Apple podcast, as well as tell me what you loved about Chasing the Swallow on Amazon. And don't forget that Chasing the Swallow has recently been approved for 13 and a half hours of continuing education for SLPs through speechtherapypd.com, which brought this lovely podcast to you today. So Megan, huzzah. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures Okay. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, 
I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. This is Megan Branham. These are my financial and non-financial disclosures for today's podcast. I do receive financial compensation from North and Family Connection of South Carolina. And additionally, receive financial compensation for today's presentation. For my non-financial disclosures, I currently serve as the volunteer chair of the Sisters of Charity Foundation of South Carolina's Kinship Care Advisory Council. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Mm -hmm.